Steve, uh, let's start with a thought experiment today. Let's imagine we're multifamily housing developers and we're going to solve the affordable housing crisis. Okay. Uh, so we know this isn't going to be easy and we know that finding land to build on is tough, but we did it. We got a site and we love it, but we don't just want to build anything on there, right? We want to solve a housing crisis and we want our property to be a great welcoming place to live. And, and we want to further access to opportunity for our residents. We want to get the most out of this site. So here's my first question for you. How do we know that we're building the most affordable units we can there? How do we know that we're not leaving units on the table without realizing it? That is a really great question. And how do we know we're building those units in the best way to get the most out of the property for our tenants? Well, that's going to make it even harder. But this is 2021, right? So there has to be a pretty smart and modern way to optimize our development. So how do we do that, Steve? Well, I think uh, since you're asking me, the answer must have something to do with data and modeling. And today's guests. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. In the midst of a severe affordable housing shortage, every unit counts and every property matters. Today on the show, we're going to look at how one company, Sidewalk Labs, is trying to help development teams get the most out of their projects and uncover hidden potential using generative design and machine learning with a new product called Delve. We're joined today by Violet Whitney, the Senior Product Manager for Delve, and Ivory Wong, a Computational Designer. So thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excited to be here. All right. So the, the concept embodied by Delve strikes me as really important, you know, especially now. But can we get into a bit about what Delve is exactly and, and the motivation for building it? Yeah, totally. So Delve is really for development teams, for developers and architects during the um, early feasibility and planning stages, usually when you're planning large uh, multi-building sites. And instead of having a waterfall method where you typically only look at two or three designs for a site, we generate large batches of designs so we can surface the needle in the haystack, so to speak. So as we make these design batches, we evaluate them for economic viability and quality of life outcomes. And we also optimize for those outcomes. So what we're doing is surfacing the best designs through big batches of designs. And Delve, um, really generative design, is really changing development. It is the future of development in many ways. Um, this thing, generative design, you might hear us refer to a few times, is a process of automatic design generation. And I say it's the future because it means development teams can make a lot more thoughtful decisions in a lot less time. And also avoid getting locked into some of those bad decisions that get made early on. So if you Typically, you can only look at a few designs at a time. That actually means that there are thousands of better design options that you probably just didn't explore. But once you're into those later stages of planning, there's really no turning back. So, yeah. Now, so so let, let's just do a compare and contrast. So 
on a you know normal product uh, normal project today without Delve, how would a development team go about that work? Yeah, so you might have um, a cost modeler trying to understand if the deal is going to work. Um, working in a spreadsheet, if they try and increase the amount of gross square footage on the site, um, they're going to model that in a spreadsheet. They're going to email that over um, to the architect to see if it actually fits on the site. The architect is then uh, going to model that in a 3D modeling program. Uh, if it doesn't fit on the site, they're going to send um, rough gross square footage calculations back to the cost modeler. Um, and you can see how this is compounded when you think about all of those various things you need to make sure check out. Um, is it actually going to have enough daylight? Is it going to work for the energy model? Is it going to work for transit? Um, so, so this is what makes it this kind of very long compounding waterfall problem. So, sounds like uh, you all must have been on some projects like that and have been uh, kicking yourselves under the table and banging your head against the wall just a little bit. <laughs> Too many. I think it's really fascinating too how uh, um, you know th this is. I mean, as we said in the intro, this is this is not an easy problem at all. You're you're optimizing a bunch of uh, across a bunch of different factors and uh, and really considering so many things. Um, but w you mentioned you know not locking yourself into bad decisions up front. What what are the kind of things that that normally we get locked up front that are difficult to change later? Well, if you decide that your footprint on the site needs to be in a specific area or you lay down some infrastructure on the site, um, you may have um, already got your architect modeling certain things. Um, you might have even started work on a site. Um, once concrete is poured or once you have uh, started to build a Revit model, there's a lot of sunk cost in hours that have been spent. So th those things get harder and harder to move as time progresses. Um, so, so they're kind of fundamental aspects of the development process, things like, you know, where, where buildings are placed and what's, what the size is of various infrastructure, that kind of thing. That makes a lot of sense that, that it would be hard to change those things, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so it's definitely good to catch those things up front. So, uh, and, and then you get to capture new things, like you say, like in, t in terms of, uh, um, you know, benefits to the community. It's not, it's not just about uh, those cost measures that would be captured in the spreadsheet, but it's, uh, it's sunlight, it's other factors. Yeah, totally. Um, so actually, I, I, one thing I wanted to mention is um, I think a big factor that we're really uh, inspired by in, in, in developing Delve um, is actually recognizing that um, people really want to be creative. Development teams want to be creative, but oftentimes they end up doing a lot of uh, tedious work uh, doing things like making sure the footprint sizes are right or laying out parking or something. Um, but when we are able to streamline some of that more tedious work up front with machine learning, that really frees up the architecture and design teams to have the time, the creativity, the bandwidth, and the billing hours to actually spend on those more creative aspects. 
Um, and it also means that we can um, measure a lot of those those aspects. Um, we were just talking about these quality of life aspects. So um, that means we can not only make sure that things like um, cost and financials work out, it's really also aspect like making sure that there's access to daylight or open space or um, walkability, a lot of those things that maybe sometimes aren't really accounted for. Oh, that, that's fantastic. So can we talk through just a little bit? So how does this work? So now that you know, you've got a development team interested in, in using this and they want to unlock their creativity, but what are they going to do? What are the steps here? Yeah, so um, th they'll share the things or the outcomes they most want to optimize for. So um, walkability, cost, or carbon targets. And they'll also share their program targets. So gross square footage targets for their various uses, like residential or commercial. And then we use those program, uh, the program that they hand over to generate design batches and then optimize those designs for the outcomes they cared about. So optimizing for things like uh, the carbon targets or the number of units uh, that they needed to get or the walkability. So how nuanced are those inputs? Like if you wanted to, for example, like express a desire for contiguous green space versus non-contiguous green space, is that something you can do? Or do you just ask for like, give me green space? Yeah, I feel like here it would be great for Ivory to jump in. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So we, we can get quite nuanced. So take unit dimensions or corridor dimensions as, as an example. In one of the previous engagement I worked on with a developer in India, we were actually able to specify um, the exact dimension of units between 15 square meters and 30 square meters and corridor width to one meter, between one meter to 1.5 meters. And the result um, of our, um, our generation, all of the variants, all of the designs are all compliant with um, their desires and requirements. That's fantastic, and uh, you know it, it's 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 great to hear about the success and and getting to that point. But I'm sure there's an absolute ton of details in terms of like you know developers, architects, cities will always consider you know different things important, and uh, and for your you know system to be able to capture all that is got to be pretty tricky. How do, how do you get to something like that? Yeah, I think we have to spend a lot of time with actual development teams so that we can learn what aspects are they really caring about what's what's most important to them as we generate designs. And so um, we're lucky enough to have spent a lot of time um, both having a lot of expertise on the team from folks that have spent time in development, but also um, also just as we serve more and more development teams as customers, um, we have a growing sense of learning what aspects they care about most and being able to um, formalize some of the things that they care about. And I think another, another thing that helps a lot is also having um, dedicated computational designers like Ivory that really help and make sure that all the needs are reflected even at a great level of nuance sometimes. 
And I just want to add to a point that Violet was mentioning how we work quite closely with developers and incorporate their needs into our features. So when right now we're working with a lot of developers in Asia and they have a very specific requirement for building orientation. So originally we didn't have orientation as a feature, um, as a required um, input in our pipeline. But after working with them and learning about their needs, now we're able to uh, require or configure all of the buildings to face a certain direction. So that's an example of constantly incorporating new features and new configurations. So with all the lessons that you learn you know, so on, on individual projects, are you able to just take a step back and, and then sort of learn lessons in the aggregate uh, from Delve with all these scenarios? Yeah, totally. I, I think that's one of the big benefits of working with Delve is that we're learning a little bit more each time about how to improve development. So that's both things like finding better design strategies for sites, but also streamlining the process in general. So, um, you know, every step along the way, we're always learning and improving that process and the design strategies we find a little more. I'm curious, um, you know, are there some things that, you know, maybe you can share, like, you know, are there lessons like, you know, you've learned how to get, you know, maximize uh, light or green space or square footage? Are, are there some sort of universal lessons to, that you've learned so far? I don't know if universal lessons. Um, I think that there are certain things um, we've learned that are probably more nuanced on how to optimize to find better options, um, which is much more about like how do you search the design space. Um, I, I, I don't know if it translates well. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think. I think that one of the things that we end up talking about in, in multifamily a fair amount, and, and especially as it relates to affordable housing, is just how heterogeneous um, our, you know, we, we think of the properties as in terms of, you know, being in a, in a specific place with specific regulations and, and all the different needs. And I think that's why this is, is so fascinating is there's so many things that you're solving against. I mean, I think that you would even have things like, uh, regulations that speak to, you know, um, parts of the construction, like uh, related to window size, uh, stairwells, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I think of those as very individualized decisions. Do you get down to those kind of things? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think those are some of the things that we learn a lot across projects, too. Um, I, I think there are a lot of um, kind of formal rules around how you develop a building um, that actually lead to uh, that maybe become a bit more tedious during typical design processes. But um, if you're able to use Delve, that really um, expedites the amount of uh, the amount of time you would have to spend um, on some of that some of those aspects. You know, as I think about, you know, all the different scenarios that Delve uh, produces and, you know, it does. And we talked about some of the, the creative aspect that it unlocks. It, it does make me wonder a little bit, uh, is there any feeling of creativity being stifled right? or or the, the risk that so many things are going to look the same because the system is 
producing so many designs for people to choose from? Do you, do you lose a little bit of that, uh, you know, individual uh, creativity with the designs? Yeah, I think having started out as an architect myself, then I feel a lot of that pressure um, to retain a lot of creativity in the process. For us, uh, I, I think for development teams that use this, what you ultimately get is firstly a lot more time to focus on the more creative aspects, um, but also when you're using something like Delve, you're exploring a much wider range of variety that would typically not be explored. So in many regards, there's a lot more ability to be creative because um, you're almost forced to think outside the box in that you're not looking at, um, you know, there's kind of this joke among architects that once you see a few buildings from a single architect, all the buildings after that kind of look the same. Um, like you, architects kind of develop a style and never really break out of the box. So um, in many ways, having a system that you're working with where you're able to be creative in, in defining the parameters of what you're gonna explore or design and say, um, as the architect, these are the things we really care about and these are the kind of design strategies we wanna look at and then create a plethora of ideas that you can look at. Um, you actually are opening up a lot of possibility that you, you may have been um, boxing yourself in by um, kind of following your typical process and only looking at the same types of designs. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, in, in looking at, at every, everything you've done to, to pull this together, I, I think, you know, it would be interesting to touch on some of the, the data sources that you consider when, when building the models. It does certainly sound like, um, you know, having more options presented uh, would you know, increase the, the creativity. And I think that that's uh, um, fascinating. And as we talked about before, it can even consider the different constraints that are involved. Um, related to um, localities and things like that. And, um, you know, I think that uh, maybe getting into some nuts and bolts of like this, so you got to have inputs to, to go in to get to all of this. Um, what is typical uh, for the, the range of inputs that you would put in? Certainly. Um, so the range of inputs, there's, okay, I can give a few examples. So one is we are calculating um, sun hours. And for that, we are grabbing um, sunlight data of the of the specific location just from open source. So that is rather straightforward. And the other thing we're calculating typically is walkability. And for that, how we do it is to um, grab walking, walking, like how long does it take to walk somewhere from Google Map, and we compound it and decay it with our certain functions to prioritize certain type of um, destinations over others. In this way, we generate a rather um, subjective, uh, sorry, excuse me, rather objective walkability score. Can you tell us about kind of the order of things then? I guess if it's, if it's, it's creating the design and it's, and it's looking at cost factors and things as well, um, what do you capture there? Um, the orders, it's, it really is 
we are, because we are trying to, I guess, disrupt this water waterfall design process or development process, the water doesn't, we, we are looking at all aspects at the same time. So we're onboarding our um, quality of life metrics, such as what I talked about previously, like walkability and um, sun exposures. At the same time, we're incorporating financial metrics, you know, together, together with it. Um, so the score... They're, they're being improved at the same pace. You know, one of the things that, that you've mentioned a couple of times now, I think, is, is walkability. And, and I think as, as I've been thinking about this, you know, I was thinking like, you know, and, and like we, we imagined in our thought experiment in the intro, like we have a site already. But walkability is a measure that, that seems to speak to site selection more than just this site as it is. Uh, so uh, how, how does Delve work and, and how do you work with this when selecting a site itself, not just building the optimal building on that site? Certainly, um, Delve does work in the realm of site selection. Similarly, we can require similar outputs such as target GFA, where we can require certain, um, certain um, metrics such as return on cost. And we compare we, we, we run the comparison throughout different sites and see the final score. And we have previous previous um, pre we have precedent that runs through these scenarios and help de the developer decide on the best site for the programs. So um, yeah, that's uh, uh, that to, to um, find site selection, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the context of the pandemic is that, uh, you know, there, there may be different preferences and whether it's related to site or, or other things, um, you know, like we, we hear about, you know, walkability was definitely very important, you know, pre-pandemic and, and, you know, the urbanization that was happening. Um, and a question is whether that would continue. I'm wondering if, you know, through the lens that you have um, working with those powerful tools at Delve, do you, are you learning new things during the pandemic or getting different questions asked of you? Yeah, we definitely hear a lot more on uh, the need for retrofits or using offices differently. I think on the walkability side, you know, as there's more remote work and pushing people to live at greater distances from work than we're having to look at what's missing in some of these places to make the neighborhoods actually viable. So we have to understand things like food deserts. Um, so luckily with the walkability and trip modeling, um, we're able to pull in uh, business and amenity data to understand what and amenities um, need to be in that in a neighborhood as the uses are changing. Um, I think another, you know, the pandemic didn't necessarily create new needs as much as accelerating a lot of the needs that already existed. So another, you know, the other major things is um, uh, uh, us having more of a spotlight on equity and making sure that we're designing a place that's not just going to improve quality of life for some, but actually going to improve the quality of life for everyone. and. I think it's because of this, it's really important for developments to measure and optimize for things like um, walkability, because that means physical health or sunlight and open space. That means mental health. And to really look at the overall picture when you're developing something, it's not just about trying to pack in um, more 
affordable housing units, um, it doesn't matter if the development that you create isn't um, a good place to live. And then I think we're also seeing a kind of uh, an, another push for um, the kind of long-term life cycle of a place on, on the kind of climate and resilience side and thinking about GHG emissions um, in the place and the long-term impacts of infrastructure. So um, that's, that's been an exciting focus for us and something that um, as part of Sidewalk Labs, we have a lot of really great experts in. So one interesting trend, more specifically to pandemic that we're seeing is the increase of individual unit size. So say, for example, previously a studio is certain square meters, but now we're planning for even longer term work from home, we're seeing an increase in the square footage. An interesting, an interesting thing that is able to test is different uh, unit size and unit mixes and how it re- how it translates to the final return on cost. Um, and we're able to put it into different scenarios and compare what is the optimal mix and what is the optimal dimensions for developers. Uh, that's really interesting. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, I know you mentioned um, you mentioned at least one, one example, but you know, where have you applied uh, Delve in this approach um, you know, throughout the world? It, um, can you give us a couple examples? Uh, uh, sure. So again, previously I worked in for this, um, we worked with this affordable housing developer in India. And for them, we were able to find, um, find more units. They were starting with about 700 units and we actually found them about 900 units at the end. So there is an increase in efficiency. At the same time, um, because it's, because affordability is their goal, so we were able to price out um, individual construction items such as walls and windows for them. So they arrived at a much more finer um, estimate in, in terms of construction and front cost. At the same time, I'm cu- currently working with a partner in Singapore and in Indonesia. So in the development process, I think um, there's probably a lot of consideration given to cost and given to units delivered. Um, is, can, can you expand on the considerations there? Um, of course. So in, in, again, in the previous affordable housing project Dow was able to uh, solve, one of the dilemma we were facing is, do we use a thicker wall construction method or do we use a thinner one? So the so the pros and cons is if you we use a thicker wall, it's actually cheaper. But if we use a thinner wall, it will, at the end, produce more units um, for the site. So in the so so we're actually we're actually able to model in these two different scenarios and give a weight to number of units produced versus give a weight to um, cost. And at the end, we're able to arrive at different design options that use, um, use actually use both. And they the result tied, to, tied up to a score um, that reflects all of, the cons- all of the things we considered. That's great. That's got to be really satisfying for your client at that point, too, to know that that was looked into as deeply as you can do it. It is. It is. It's also like very clear the trade-offs, and um, so that's very interesting prompt for us. 
Well, I think um, no matter where people are to hear of um, the opportunity for 200 additional affordable units, whether, whether you're a developer or a community, that has got to be incredibly attractive. It is. It is. Um, they were very happy with the final result. And not only we found um, more units, we were able to, because we um, put quality of life metrics in our, uh, in our score, we were able to optimize for that as well. And they ended up having more units that is east-west facing to take advantage of natural ventilation. So that has been a great experience for us as well. Wow. Uh, so what's next? Uh, What's next for Delve? Yeah, I think um, one one thing that we're particularly um, invested in and that I think goes to some of what Ivory is talking about in the places that we're working is just most development in the world isn't formally planned. And what that means is negative quality of life outcomes and long-term resilience and infrastructure planning that's not accounted for. So we really have the goal of scaling expertise beyond just the experts. I think in the case of affordable housing, you know, these usually aren't developments that are getting Arc Daily architects working on them. Um, the people who end up losing out on the quality of life are the people that actually live in those affordable housing locations where quality of life, access to daylight and open space and, and amenities isn't accounted for. So um, we're really excited at the opportunity and potential that um, Delve can be used in early stages for developments to actually ensure that we don't leave more homes for people on the table and that the, the homes that are generated um, are actually also better quality of life for those people. And that's great to hear. And, you know, one of the things, as as we've done all these episodes of the podcast and talked a lot about uh, affordable housing and and development, it's just so clear, like how nuanced a topic that is and and solving the affordable housing crisis has so many different different inputs to it and and, uh, different people looking at it different ways. Some people look at it from a regulatory perspective. Some just look at it in terms of uh, supply and demand. and, and uh, just love hearing that that there's all this attention paid to uh, paid to design, not just of the property, but of of the whole experience and, and uh, looking at the the process as well. And clearly, there uh, there are ways to save on on process and ways to extract more uh, value for the community from uh, from the development process and, and and planning and design. So thank you so much uh, for being on the show today and, and talking about this stuff. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Yay, thanks. Yep, thank you. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.